Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. This morning, uh, we're going to continue our study in Revelation, and we do this every Uh, the last Sunday of every month. And so if you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3. And uh, we're going to begin in verse 1, Revelation 3, 1. Revelation 3, 1. And if you're able, stand as we read the Word of God. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. And to the angel of the church at Sardis write, This is what he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore... If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come to you. But you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will never erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the Word of God. Would you bow with me? Lord, I pray that today you would give us the ear to hear, the eyes to see, revelation from your Word. Lord, we know that all Scripture is profitable, and we would dare not neglect this last book, Lord, especially these these letters that you yourself have written to these seven churches. Lord, I, I pray that we would open our Um, understanding today to see what you would have us see in the Holy Scriptures today. And Lord, give us the courage to align our lives according to your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So since it's been a month, and it's always been about a month since we've been in the book of Revelation, I'd like to set the stage again, if you'll indulge me, for those who have not been around also for our other studies in Revelation. Here we see there are seven letters being written to seven actual churches in Asia Minor back in uh, the, those days, back in the first century. Jesus himself, God's Word says, is the author, and he's writing this in perfect unity with the Holy Spirit, and through the Spirit, uh, inspired hand of his beloved friend John, whom he called his, his dearest friend. And John was a chosen apostle. He was writing this uh, the, the entire Revelation, the book of Revelation, from the Isle of Patmos, where as an old man he had been exiled to work on this essentially a prison colony. Because these are letters, you might even describe them as epistles because that's what the epistles are. They're letters that were written to the churches. And so here we see Jesus writing these letters. They are the epistles of Jesus. And up until now, through chapter 2, geographically, we've been working our way north from Ephesus to the city of Smyrna and then 
the furthest north to Pergamum. And then along this mail route, what would be the mail route, you would then kind of turn uh, more east and southeast to Thyatira. And now we continue even further south and slightly east, about 30 miles, and we're setting our sights on this, this city called Sardis and this church that was uh, set up there, planted in Sardis. We have no, um, no historical record of who planted the church there, but more than likely it was as a result of Paul's ministry out of Ephesus. It is interesting to note, however, that 35 miles or so due west is the city of Smyrna, and this is the city, the suffering, the suffering church in this city, a church that was greatly persecuted. And remember what Jesus wrote to this church in Smyrna. He said, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So he's telling this persecuted church, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. But here in, uh, in Sardis, he writes the opposite to them. He says, you have a name that you are alive, but in actuality, you're dead. You're dead and you don't even know it. You've got this reputation. So Smyrna was persecuted. They were thrown in prison. They were killed for their faith. And Christ had no correction at all for that church. They were being purified in the fires and trials of persecution. But here, you would think that they'd be facing the same type of persecution that uh, Smyrna was facing, but for some reason, they were not. For some reason, they were not facing the same kind of persecution. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But Sardis was at one time one of the greatest cities in ancient history. It was founded around 1200 B.C., all right? So 1200 years before the time of Christ, and it was the capital city of the Lydian kingdom. Uh, the nearby Pactolus River provided much gold for this city. It was responsible for the wealth of the city, and some say that gold and silver coins were first minted right here in Sardis, that it was the, the birthplace of our uh, modern, even our modern-day coin system. The city was first situated on uh, Mount Tumulus. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying these names right. I, I kind of go with the, the theory of you fake it until you make it kind of thing. So, you know, your guess is good as mine on some of these pronunciations, but you'll get the point. And this mountain rising from the river valley below and at the sides of the mountain were what could be described as spurs of rock. And they were these rock formations that jutted upward. And atop the mountain was situated this defensive stronghold in the city. Uh, and it was called the Citadel or the Acropolis, this, this defensive stronghold. In my mind, I think of like... Um, Helm's Deep from the movie The Two Towers. It was this, this place of refuge where they would run and they were essentially safe from the enemy. But at first glance, and for anyone who just looked at the surface, this citadel was known to be impenetrable. It was seemingly impossible to breach the, the walls of this city. In fact, a proverb was often quoted after the fact in the past to capture, uh, quote, to capture the Acropolis of Sardis, was essentially saying, synonymous to, hey, 
we can do the impossible, okay? So that's, it was used synonymously with that saying, to capture the Acropolis of Sardis. That's how it was thought of. However, in book one of the Persian War written by Herodotus, it tells us of the defeat of Sardis by Cyrus the Persian. And this is church, I'm not church history, but it's history, and it's uh, very, very interesting, and I've I've tried to translate this in a bit of modern language so that you guys can understand because some of the language didn't make any sense uh, to us. It would be very difficult to understand. So here's what they wrote, quote, The following is the way in which Sardis was taken. On the 14th day of the siege, Cyrus bade some horsemen ride about his lines and made a proclamation to the whole army that he would give a reward to the man who could first mount the wall. After this, he made an assault, but without success. So he made an assault on the wall. It it held up to its reputation. They could not breach the walls. His troops uh, retired, but a certain Mardian, uh, Heroides by name, resolved to approach the citadel and attempted to enter a place where no guards were ever set. On this side, the rock was so precipitous and the citadel, as it seemed, so impregnable that no one entertained the thought of its ever being captured at this particular place. Yet here was the only portion of their defenses which their old king Meles did not carry the lion which was his layman bore to him. In other words, there were no guards appointed to stand at this particular place on the wall. For he had declared that if the defenses were taken head on, Sardis would be impregnable. So King Meles, in consequence, placed guards around the rest of the fortress where the citadel seemed open to attack, but he dared them to take it around the side, which he looked at or looked on as a sheer precipice and therefore absolutely secure. It is on that side of the city which faces Mount Tomalus. Heroides, however, just the day before, observed a Lydian soldier descend the rock to retrieve a helmet that had rolled down from a top. So here in the providence of God, this guard that's at the top of this uh, citadel, his helmet falls off the wall and rolls down, and he scales down the rocks, apparently, which they had done because they were familiar with it, and in so doing, Herodotes, or whatever you call his name, he sees this going on and watches him climb back up, and that's how he saw that he could climb up and scale the wall, okay? So he climbed the rock himself, and other Persians followed in his tracks until a large number had mounted to the top, and thus was Sardis taken and given up entirely to pillage. So here we have a city, a stronghold with a reputation of being undefeatable or indefeatable, impregnable. It was considered to be impossible, and yet the very place they believed was their greatest strength Having been left unguarded, it was in fact the city's greatest weakness. It was said that even children could have defended the citadel had they been posted on that side of the mountain. Even children could have thrown rocks or spears and knocked the soldiers off the wall, but they left it completely unguarded. And instead, one man after another entered the city by way of that unguarded wall, and by cover of night they snuck in, They defeated everyone inside, and they took the city. And now we have some context that will help us understand this letter, uh, the opening lines of this letter in Revelation 3.1. 
he writes to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, this is what he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says. Now first let me explain this before we get to the next part. The seven spirits of God, you wonder what in the world does that mean? And rather than get all mystical about it, let's just go to Scripture and see what Scripture says. Remember that there's symbolism here in the book of Revelation, and the symbolism always points to something real, something tangible. Uh, So rather than, as I said, jump to mystical conclusions, we need to just harmonize Scripture in this case. In Revelation 1.4, Revelation 1.4, we see the Spirit referred to in this same way. It says, the seven spirits who are before His throne. The seven spirits who are before His throne. If you flip over real quick to chapter 4, verse 5 in Revelation, chapter 4, verse 5, we see this, Revelation 4, 5. It says, And out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay, so there's another verse that we can take into consideration. Now flip over to chapter 5 and look at verse 6. Revelation 5, verse 6, we read, Then I saw in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Now let me remind you that the number seven represents perfect completion or infinite Uh, fullness. And in these varying references, we find several things in common that I want you to take note of in order to understand. All of these take place at the very throne of God. Revelation 4, 5 refers to the seven spirits as lamps. Well, what do you use lamps for in your home? You use it to shine light. And why do we need light? Because in the absence of light, there's darkness and you can't see anything and you stub your toe or you hurt yourself, right? So we, we use light, we use lamps in order to see. And that's what we see here. So in Revelation 5, 6, we see Jesus represented as this lamb who was slain. And we all know what that means. But he has seven horns, meaning he's infinite in perfect fullness in his power. He's almighty. He's Lord of all. He's King of kings. And this is the seven horns. And then we see that this lamb also has seven eyes. It's not just a freaky-looking lamb, uh, although it would be if we were to see this vision, but the lamb's seven eyes are synonymous with the seven spirits of God sent out across the earth. And this reference to the seven spirits of God as lamps, as the eyes of Jesus, the lamb who was slain, they are sent out to all the earth, and you add to that the seven spirits, what he says in the passage as well, the seven stars, And we clearly see he's talking about his churches, okay? He says, this is what he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says. Now, if you guys remember the seven stars, if you flip over to chapter 1 real quick, Revelation 1, I want you to look at verse 20. Revelation 1, verse 20. I want you to see this with your own eyes if you can. Here's what it says in Revelation 1.20. I mean, it, it lines it out for us. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So it just comes right out and tells us. It, it you know, um, 
opens our eyes to, to what it means right there in that passage. And when you put all these things together, what you have is a picture of the infinite knowledge, the, the all-knowingness of God, of, and not only Christ, but the picture of the throne and the Spirit and the slain Christ or the, the, the victorious Christ, the Godhead, the Father at His throne, the infinite fullness of the Holy Spirit, and the victorious Son, as I said, perfectly unified in their omniscience in what's going on in the world and among the churches. This represents, I don't know why, but I think of that little bird in the Lion King that sings that song, Morning Report or something. This is the, this is the morning report, but it's infinite in nature. This is Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. It is the, the messengers in the churches. And this is the full report given to God, the Father, and, and it's also synonymous with the Spirit and the Son. Like it's, they're one in their being. Christ has his messengers, the stars in each church. The Holy Spirit is present in every true church, speaking through the written word of God. Christ himself sees all that takes place within his church. Remember the vision of Christ in chapter 1. He walks in the midst of his lampstands. He's walking in the middle of his churches. It's in real time. He's got these piercing eyes, a flame of fire. There's nothing hidden from the eyes of God. He knows all. He is involved. His eyes are wide open. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing unseen. There's nothing unknown. And then with that statement comes the next statement where he says, I know your deeds and that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. This is what Christ is saying in his omniscience, in his all-knowing power. A powerful and terrifying indictment against this church. Like the city of Sardis, thinking that they were unbeatable, their greatest strength was in fact their downfall. And we see this with the church at Sardis. You think about the king who went to bed that evening comfortable, content, secure, believing that he would go on uh, the next day just as the day before and I wonder if he knew when he closed his eyes that very night that his eyes may never open again to this world. Just think about that for a moment. This church, in the same way, believed that they were alive. They had a reputation of being alive, but Christ says they were, in fact, dead. You see, Jesus sees past the mask of health in the church of Sardis. They may have a facade on the outside and look pretty on the outside, but on the inside they're not unlike the, uh, what Jesus told the Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. He says, I know your deeds in chapter 3, verse 1. He means that he knows the good, the bad, and the unfinished deeds of this church. Jesus then says, you have the reputation of being alive. There are likely... A few reasons for this, and we have to consider what were the dangers in that day? What were the dangers to the church in that first century? We see a lot of these listed in these letters to the seven churches, but I want to remind you, number one was false teaching. False teaching. Sexual immorality and idolatry within the church. So false teaching that arose within the church, idolatry falling back into their old pagan practices, 
And then, of course, sexual immorality came along with often with the pagan practices, and, and that stuff went on inside the church. Number two, though, was persecution by Rome. Rome itself would persecute the church, and then number three was persecution from the Jews, those who, set the, who had rejected Christ and then set themselves against the church, Christ's church, and persecuted the church and even uh, worked to so tarnish the reputation of Christians out in the world that it would force uh, Rome's attention on these new, these new uh, Nazarenes or this new Nazarite sect to the point that they would draw their attention and eventually draw their sword. We do not find the Nicolaitans, Jezebel, sexual immorality, or idolatry mentioned in this letter to Sardis. It's not mentioned in this passage. So we know that their death most likely didn't come because they fell into any of those things. These problems found in some of the other churches likely had come from compromise with Rome and their paganism, as I mentioned before. But at face value, they weren't engaged in the wickedness of that kind of sin. They had not compromised in that way, so they looked good in that area. They were really good at laying low. And I'll, I'll show you what I mean. The church at Pergamum comprised uh, or compromised with the Roman emperor worship cult. Remember Pergamum? And they confessed Christ as Lord, but they would also confess Caesar as Lord if it meant they didn't have to die by the sword. You see what I'm saying? So that's how the church in Pergamum compromised with Rome. They were not willing to give their lives or be persecuted, so they went along to get along. And similarly, Thyatira confessed Christ as Lord, but they listened to Jezebel, we find. And Jezebel uh, wanted them to join in these, um, these different working groups, and, and if you didn't join into this pagan practice, then you weren't going to take part. You'd essentially lose your job is what would happen. And so they didn't want to lose their livelihood, their way of living. So they engaged in what they actually referred to as the deep things of Satan in order to go along to get along. They did that as well. The correction in these letters are all pointed to a lack of loyalty to Christ in some way, shape, or form. But if Sardis had not compromised in the areas of false teaching or idolatry or sexual sin, what exactly had they compromised on? What had caused Christ Jesus to, to send this letter of scathing indictment against this church? Why did they look as if they were alive on the outside, yet on the inside, they were rotting corpses. The promise Jesus makes at the close of this letter to Sardis may actually help us identify what was going on there. The problem in Sardis, um, if you'll indulge me, we're going to skip down a little bit. Instead of going in order, we're going to skip down to chapter 3, verse 5, and then we'll come back up and cover these other verses. But in 3, 5, Jesus says to the one who conquers, I will never erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. So he's, he's speaking of this book, and He's speaking of confessing His name openly before the Father and the angel. This promise reflects what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. You're familiar with this passage, Matthew 10, 
32 through 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And those are the words of Christ himself, the same kind of conquering that we see in Revelation 12, 11, this, these overcomers, we see this quote in Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their witness, and they did not love their life even unto death. They were willing to proclaim the gospel and say that I'm with Christ even if it meant them dying by the sword. That's what it meant to overcome. What it meant to overcome spiritually was to actually be killed in this life because you would not deny Christ. And that's what it meant to be an overcomer. You can kill the body, but you can't touch me eternally. I'm eternally safe. What a beautiful, amazing promise that is. And, and that applies to us as well, church. No matter how bad things get in the world, and, and if it comes to that point... We can hold fast to the name of Christ and to the gospel. And we can stand up and, and proclaim the gospel and not compromise. And we know that we are safe in the hands of Jesus. It is likely that Jesus makes this promise because the church in Sardis was tempted to, to avoid confessing Jesus before men. That's what I see in this passage. But why would they not want to confess Jesus? Well... Remember again the list of threats in their day, persecution by Rome and the Jews. And this letter is silent again about sexual immorality, about idolatry. There are no references to the teachings of the Nicolaitans or to the false prophetess Jezebel. We see all of that. That doesn't mean there weren't little pockets here and there, but it just means overall they hadn't fallen into that. It seems possible then that the silence may indicate that the church in Sardis was not compromising with Rome either, not directly as the church in Thyatira was. Essentially, they wanted to keep the peace. Now, if you've heard of Pax Romana before, the peace of Rome, it'll help you understand what was going on here. Rome would allow any people that they conquered to continue worshiping their gods as long as there would be no insurrection or rebellion. So once they conquered the Jews, they still allowed the Jews to worship Yahweh and, and have all their religious practices. They did not force their gods onto the people that they conquered. And this was genius because it's one thing when you conquer a people, they will live under submission or under that authority as long as you don't push into their spiritual beliefs. But once you go there, then you're going to have all kinds of up uprisings and rebellions and that sort of thing. So this was genius, the Pax Romana. Basically, you go along to get along, and, and if this is your religion, then we're going to accommodate that religion as long as you don't rebel against the government. And if you do rebel, then the peace of Rome meant they're going to step on your face. They're going to, they're going to take care of you. They're going to neutralize the situation as we saw them do to Jerusalem and to the Jews in 70 AD. But the practicing Jews were under this Roman protection. But this new sect of Nazarite followers were not under this protection because this was a new group that arose out of Judaism. 
okay? So they were not grandfathered in, if you will, to this uh, piece of Rome. And so when they confessed Christ as Lord, they were essentially not under the umbrella of protection. And what it meant was if they publicly confessed Christ as Lord, then which was a yearly thing that was required, if they would not confess Christ as Lord, they would take them off and they would kill them somewhere else. So when the Bible says to confess Christ as Lord, it doesn't mean I'm raising my hand and I'm, I'm paying the Lord lip service. It means I'm willing to die for Him. He is my Lord, and I will not confess any other Lord or any other God or any other higher priority than Christ Himself in my life under penalty of death. That's what it means, that you would give your very life for Him. It's, it's important that we understand what lordship truly is in the body of Christ. Uh, we, have, we have so dumbed it down and made it uh, really just thrown the gates wide open to where you know it, it's an emotional decision that you make when in actuality, look, you need to count the cost. You need to know what it means to be a Christ follower and then you need to be willing to give your very life if that's what the Lord asks of you. But you see, this was a convenient loophole for the new Jewish Christians uh, there in this church in Sardis before they had converted to be Christ followers. Their name was on the roll in the Jewish synagogue. Okay? So just think about this for a moment. Their names were written in the Jewish record books in the synagogues so they would be exempt from the mandatory participation in the Roman imperial cult. So as long as they didn't confess too loudly, the Jews would leave their names written in the roll in the synagogues and then whenever that yearly thing would come up and they would say, hey, I'm not confessing Christ as Lord, or they would say, "My name's," they can fall back on that. My name's written in the Jewish in the Jewish synagogue role, and so therefore I'm protected under that old law. So they didn't disconnect completely from their Judaism, and they held on to that as a security blanket, and at times to try to keep them from the, from the threat of death to stay safe. Now this text does not explicitly come out and tell us that this was the case in Sardis, but other background indications fit with this picture, that that's what was going on. There's something in the Jewish, uh, they have 18 benedictions that are prayed daily by the Jews in the ancient world, and one of them is the curse of the menim, the curse of the menim. Imagine this, a curse that you pray. But the curse of the menim reads, quote, May the Nazarenes and the menim suddenly perish, and may they be blotted out of the book of life and not enrolled along with the righteous. So the Jews would actually pray against the Christ followers. Not only did they reject Christ, but they prayed daily that the new Christians would go to hell. That's what they prayed. So you can understand the hatred that so many of those early Christians would struggle with uh, and, and understanding why even as time passed, that people focus on the hearts of those, those hating Jews and they can get in trouble by they, they themselves becoming guilty of the very hate that the Jews were guilty of. But they prayed 
Again, may the Nazarenes and the Menim suddenly perish, and may they be blotted out of the book of life and not enrolled among the righteous. So it could be this very thing that Jesus references for those who overcome in Sardis. Jesus promises, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. How encouraging that must have been to them that perhaps they're laying low and allowing their names to remain on the, on the rolls in the synagogues, thinking that somehow they are protecting themselves. But Christ then comes back here and gives them affirmation. Look, they may kill you, but I'll never blot your name out. If you're truly mine, I will never blot your name out. But again, this is only a hypothetical kind of reconstruction of what may have been going on there in Sardis. But those Christians who openly confessed Jesus had their names blotted out of the synagogue register and it removed them from the protection of of Rome under that Pax Romana. Does everybody understand? Nod your head if if you got that. Okay, so pretty interesting stuff there. And this would seem to explain how the church in Sardis could have had a reputation of being alive because they're not compromising with Rome as the others did by committing idolatry and sexual immorality, their death in this case would be a result of the fact that they were avoiding Roman persecution and potentially death by refusing to confess the name of Jesus before men. And of course, Jesus is not fooled by this at all. Why? Because He sees everything. He's omniscient. He speaks words that confront and call people to life and not to death. Revelation 3.2. Revelation 3.2. He says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Now this reference to what remains seems to be in line with what Jesus said in verse 4 when He refers to the few in Sardis who have, quote, not soiled their garments. There were some faithful in that church. As we have seen in all of these churches, there's the the you, which is his true church within the local church, and then there are the, the them who are kind of outliers who are part of the church but are not true Christ followers for whatever reason. And he's saying you need to wake up and you need to strengthen the things that remain. You need to side with these folks who have not soiled their garments and, and do the same. As in all the churches so far, I, as I said, some members of the church are loyal And Christ's call was to strengthen those who were loyal so that the entire church would not fall and face the judgment. Wake up, he says. Wake up and do not sleep unguarded. Do not rest in your own perceived strength. Wake up. You slumber believing that you are safe And you believe that you've outsmarted your enemy, that you're cleverly flying below the radar, and that you've in some way saved your life. Wake up, church, and reinforce your defenses, or you are already dead. How can they reinforce their defenses? He says, strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains. Verse 3, look at that. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Remember what you've seen and heard. Keep it and repent. It's the Word of God, folks. The Word of God. Remember the proto-orthodoxy is the word I like to use. It is the teaching of Christ and the apostles. 
What they taught is what we strive to believe. And every time the church, the, 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 the universal church, the, the worldwide church, every time they chase winds of doctrines or get into these trendy things, you hold fast to the word of God. Do not be blown around by every wind of doctrine. Hold fast to the truth of what Christ taught and what the apostles taught. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. When your eyes were first opened to the truth, do you remember that? When your eyes were first opened and the good news set your soul on fire, you were, you were vibrant, you were excited, you were passionate about what the Lord had done in your life. You know, as time goes on, that can begin to wane. You can kind of become ho-hum in your walk with Christ. We should never be ho-hum. I'm just as saved and just as forgiven, and He's just as merciful today as He was the day that I saw my sin and fell on my face before God. Do you know that about yourself? It's no different today. His mercy is new every morning, and boy, do I need it every morning. He says, keep it and walk in it. Repent of this foolishness. You seek to save your life, but in so doing, you will lose your life. You know, the other passage, Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? What are you thinking? You really think you're, you're gaining a leg up by being successful in this world and making your priorities in life all about making a name for yourself or accumulating things or whatever the case may be? It matters not because you leave this world the same way you came in. You didn't do anything to get here. You just were born. You had nothing to do with that. But yet you receive all the benefits of life. And let me tell you something. You have nothing to do with your spiritual rebirth either. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, in His power, opening your eyes to your sinful position and where you stand before God, knowing that eternally you are in great danger and that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to save yourself, and therefore you must fall on the mercy of Christ and what He did at the cross. He removes His robe of righteousness, and He places it on you. And when the Father looks at you, He sees the sacrifice of His Son. There's nothing that you've given in the process. So we can't boast, right? He says in 3b, verse 3b, Therefore... If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Jesus in His mercy seeks to help them understand, listen to this, that the consequences of their compromise will end up being far more severe than anything they thought they were saving themselves from in, in compromising with Rome or flying in under the radar by not confessing Christ in the first place. You see, in this life, we play with temporal consequences. But if you step out of this life into the next, and you haven't fallen on your face before God, you're dealing with eternal consequences. You understand the weight of that? Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body. Those are temporal consequences. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul in hell. He's talking about God the Father. 
when you die under the wrath of God, when you have not placed your faith in the righteousness of Christ. To those caught asleep, there's this future exposure that will bring shame. You can only fake it for so long. Do you hear me? You can only fake it for so long. There's coming a day when the pretending is over and you're going to stand before a holy God and you will give it an account. And this exposure will bring shame. Similar to the parable of the talents, that, that day in which he will come like a thief. If you flip over to Revelation 16, Revelation 16, look at verse 15. We're all right here in Revelation, but Revelation 16, verse 15. We see this echoed in, this, in the words of Christ here. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Look what he says. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. He's talking about that day when, when your life will be laid open and all the pretending will be exposed and people will see me for who I really am. However that works, this isn't a gospel, this isn't a, a, an attempt to make you fearful, it's, it's an attempt to let you understand, to help you understand the weight and reality of eternity and what we will all be facing. You see, we, we all have a need to be vigilant. We all have to be so alert because we cannot give any place in our lives for sin, for idolatry, for sexual impurity, or for compromise. Those are a given. If you want to reflect the holiness of God, you can't be engaging in that sort of thing. The Bible tells us our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But he not only comes as an obvious adversary face to face, he's clandestine. He sneaks around. He puts on a facade. He knows which of our walls are left unguarded, if you will. He knows the tiny cracks and footholds that we leave open to him. So he masquerades at times as an angel of light. He comes in the form of what is true and what is right, or what the world tells us is moral, or what humanism tells us is moral. The twisting of the truth, promoting false gospels, counterfeiting works of the Holy Spirit, fashioning idols, false Christs who indeed bear His name, they bear the name of Jesus, but they deny the truth of God's Word. However, to the faithful, the loyal, to those who keep themselves aware and alert, this day will be a joyful day, a day of great justice and celebration. Look at verse 4. But you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They will walk with me, Christ says. We're going to get to walk with Him and wear His robes of righteousness. He alone makes us worthy. As I said, nothing that we do. So how do we stay awake? 
How can we avoid defiling our garments? How can we walk worthy? How can we strengthen what remains in our own life? How can we grow? Well, we submit to Christ Jesus and we confess Him openly and unashamedly. We seek to walk in the true power, the genuine power of the Holy Spirit for the edification of others. We've been learning all about this. The purpose of the local church is not about me, me, me. It's about pouring ourselves out for one another, sacrificing selflessly for one another. If your focus is on you, then your focus is wrong. Even Christ came and took on the form of flesh of man and became a servant and washed feet and went to the cross. That's what we're called to do as well. That's our ministry. So we study the Word of God. We allow it to wash us. We allow it to renew our minds, to change our thinking, to reveal the areas in our lives that do not reflect Christ's holiness. And this is what it means to be an overcomer. We have Jesus. We submit to the powerful, transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives daily. One simple question that will change your life is what I'm about to say, honor God. Does it truly honor Him? Is what I'm about to do, does it honor God? And if you'll just begin to ask those questions in light of what Scripture tells us, honors God and not ourselves. Does it give Him glory? Or are we trying to grab some of His shine for ourselves? Ask those questions. And if the answer is the wrong answer, don't do it. It's real simple. Verse 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will never erase His name from the book of life, and I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. This is a celebration. This is a graduation. These are those who have overcome. These are those who are clothed in white, who have been wrapped in the robes of Christ's righteousness. We've done nothing on our own to earn this, but yet we are the recipients of His great mercy and His forgiveness, and we get to walk in eternity side by side with Christ, beholding His face in the presence of God Almighty for eternity, forever and ever and ever. And just so you think, if in case you think that eternity is like one eternally long church service, that's the wrong way to look at it. It's not at all. You have no idea what eternity is going to be like. It is, if you could think of the most uh, incredible memory event happiness of your entire life and multiply that times a bajillion and then multiply that times eternity, that's about not even scratching the surface, okay? So the idea is we can't fathom what eternity is going to be like. But the bottom line, folks, just think about this. We get to be with Jesus. He's our reward. We get to walk with Christ. We get to fellowship with Christ face to face. What an amazing day that will be. The Bible tells us that it is the Spirit's work in us. It is God that will be faithful to complete the task that He began in us. So as you are faithful in submitting to Him, He will be faithful in transforming you. And then when you lack the faith, He will give you faith. And when you uh, stumble, He will pick you back up. 
The Bible promises us that, that if we are truly His, there's nothing that can snatch us out of His hand. We can have security in our eternity if we look at our lives and we see that there's growth and we see that we're walking the path and we're pursuing Him and we're submitting to Him and we're asking those questions, those questions, does it honor God? We're asking those things. That's how we're living our lives. Then we're walking that path and we know that we will remain in the faith. But Jesus is the one who has the infinite, omniscient report. His presence is ever watchful in His church as His messengers are faithful to proclaim His word in His church. His presence is empowering His church as the fullness of the Holy Spirit is available to every submitting believer to renew them, to renew their mind, to make them more Christ-like, to be conformed into His image. Verse 6, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Very simply, He calls us to stay awake, to be alert, to remain loyal to Him and His Word. So my question to you this morning is, are you awake? Are you alert? Are you a slave in any way in your life to sexual immorality? Is that an issue in your life? And you're called to wake up. The best thing you can do if you've got a sin issue in your life, any sin issue, is to turn the light on and tell someone that you love about your struggle and repent today, even right now, right where you sit right now. You can repent of your sin and ask Christ to forgive you and He will pour His mercy upon you just like He did me. And you can begin walking your life in a new way. Have you become an idolater in some way? We think, no, that's silly. I, I don't have any idols around my house. I don't bow down and worship things. Well, do you believe in another spirit, another gospel, another Jesus replacing the Christ of God's Word with your own version? Has your pride replaced, has your pride placed you upon Christ's rightful throne in your life? Do you claim the right to control your life? Your own decisions? I'm in charge of my future? That's idolatry just the same. You are trying to arrest control from your Creator. You are trying to live your life according to your own wisdom and knowledge, but He knows all. Why would you do that? I love the illustration of you're on an airplane and you beat on the cockpit door because there's a little turbulence and you tell the pilot, I want to take over. Having never flown a plane, having no idea what the flight plan is, having no idea how the controls work, Trying to tell God you want to run your life is way more idiotic than that, okay? Just to put it very simply and plainly. And God's Word says, wake up and repent. The question is, are you afraid to confess Him before men? Are you trying to fly under the radar? Because look, we have no promises about in this life what we're going to face. I know there are a lot of folks out there that, that believe and want to believe that things are going to get better and better. I don't believe that's what Scripture teaches. I think you ought to be ready to count the cost and pay whatever price may come for being a follower of Christ. If things get better and better, hallelujah, right? 
Praise the Lord. I just know too many people. I don't think that's going to happen. I know Christ, and I know what He said is going to happen, and I trust Him. Today's the day. Right now is the moment for you, if you've never done it, to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon His name. Ask for forgiveness. Repent of your sin. Tell someone around you that that loves you and that you trust, and let them pray with you, and then y'all come talk to me, and let's talk about what it truly means to follow Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need only to submit to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.